Hey, it's Greg Brady. Glad you found the Toronto Today podcast. Really appreciate you listening and downloading and subscribing. On the show today, a very dark day in U.S. history, Uh, an infamous day, a very bad day, not just for people in America, but people who believe in America. We've all got friends, relatives, uh, destinations we want to travel to, and uh, sports we watch from there. Terrible, terrible day, January 6, 2021. We'll cover it off with Joe Walsh, the former Republican congressman who uh, now uh, a sworn enemy of Donald Trump and the Republican Party. So he's got some stories, and he brings it from a year ago today. Dr. Isaac Bogush on the show. You'll get his insight on where we're at right now with COVID and also the chief of surgery for an Oakville hospital. We'll talk about surgeries being put on hold, whether or not that's going to be a long process to get surgeries back on track or a short one over these next few weeks. I hope you'll be encouraged by what he says. The Toronto Today podcast starts now. Let's start here. Uh, Hospital capacity. Everyone's talking about the hospitals, and they should. We're trying to figure out where we're at. Um, I noticed this yesterday that uh, a a gentleman who listens to the show sent me some headlines. And headlines can sometimes be deceiving, but I wanted to push this out there for you. Um, We're in a bad place with the hospitals right now. Omicron was going to cause some mayhem. Um, You might remember listening in mid-November, late November, some patently obvious things were going to happen. And you know I bristle. I bristle. Maybe I bristle too much. Um, But I bristle when people are like, and as everybody expected, well, nobody expected something quite as transmissible as Omicron. Nobody did. I've had two epidemiologists tell me that I trust, uh, dramatically so, one has been on the show, one has not, that Omicron is the is the booster for Delta that, in essence, we didn't know we needed, but it is going to flatten Delta out. Remember, this is where we've pushed the spotlight away, and we use the O word all the time. We don't use the D word. A lot of cases that are bad in hospital right now, and now I got to be cautious because I can't call out people for doing something I just did. Some cases, not a lot, because I don't mean a lot to be the majority, but hundreds of cases in our province right now are, uh, are the Delta variant in hospital, and we need to know that. So I think everybody's thinking, well, I'm getting COVID right now. It's Omicron. Not necessarily. Depends how fierce it is. Now, do I know about 20, 22 people who have acquired COVID-19, this particular strain, in the last three weeks? Yes. Have any of them gone to hospital? No. It's just, it's just where it's at. It's, it's a straight up 22 for 22, unless they're not telling me, and I don't know what, they're, what the benefit is of doing that. So these are the headlines I see on hospitals. And uh, a guy named uh, John Mark sent me these um, from the city of Hamilton, our friends in the Hammer. So I want you to I want you to listen to some of these headlines because I'm hearing. I had somebody point blank ask me the other night, "Hey, are hospitals are our hospitalizations going to go up in the next three weeks?" And I said, "Well, yes, but they always do. They always do this time of year. It's a question of now." We have less capacity because we've got nurses that are out and we've got healthcare workers and doctors and surgeons that are isolating right now. But there's a lot of, um, how would I put it? There's a lot of doctor on doctor crime happening right now and uh, division and derision and other D words. There is because there's many doctors saying too much is being made of this. Like they smell a rat. Uh, they smell a rat in terms of some of what is being projected about where it's at. Nurses, doctors, they're all stretched thin. Got it, 100%. All that's true. All that's accurate. Um, But this happens many times a year, and we just didn't amplify it because something else was going on. Australia was on fire, or there was a big car accident in the city, or the Leafs went on a five-game winning streak, or Kawhi Leonard thought it was too cold and decided to stay home instead of load management, right? The one year he was here. Here's the headlines from uh, well, let's let's start in uh, let's start in 2016, back when things just felt a lot more uh, normal. This is even right before the U.S. election. Donald Trump's not even the president-elect yet in the United States. Here's the headline from the Hamilton Spectator: Hamilton's hospitals overwhelmed with patients. Okay, that's November of 2016. Interesting. Mm. Okay. Uh, oh, January 2017, four months later, Hamilton hospitals running at 120 percent capacity. These are headlines, and then there's obviously a subsequent story and data and, uh, and, and, and quotes, and, and this, is, this is what was happening. A year later, did it get any better? Mm, no, not terribly. Hamilton Hospital's over capacity as flu season surges. January 16th, that's 10 days from now. 
would be January 16th. Does the flu season surge at this time of year? Yes, it absolutely does. And, oh, my goodness, leading up to uh, uh, COVID-19, I wonder if we sort of figured out that maybe if we had a a mass emergency event and a global No. Oh, no. Headline, Hamilton's Hospital is overflowing heading into flu season, October 2019. COVID puts a ton of pressure on the hospitals. It puts a ton of pressure on them. Um, Some of that staffing. Some of that is panicked people coming to emergency rooms thinking they're about to die from a, a, a runny nose or sniffles. COVID is not penetrating into the lungs uh, or sorry, let me clarify, Omicron's not penetrating into the lungs of people who are getting it. So people are having fewer bad outcomes. It's staying in the nostrils and the throat. It's, it's, it, there's not a lot of people that are hemorrhaging their breath. There's not a lot of people that are having big time problems with their with their you know uh, ability to breathe. The throat and the nose, a sore throat, a dry mouth, uh, a, you know, a cough, a runny nose. A stuffed up nose. That's happening a lot. Am I talking about that exclusively? No. No, that's not exclusive. Nothing's exclusive the same way nothing was without risk prior to this. But if you want to know what uh, the, the number, and this is from the Ontario Hospital Association yesterday, the OHA, hospital capacity in critical care. Let's get to the straight numbers. Some people have questioned the numbers. I question why they're questioning the numbers. Some healthcare professionals have reached out to me and said, no, 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 there's a lot more COVID patients than that. Um, You sure you got your numbers right? I'm starting to question why they're questioning. Because right now, 16% of capacity in ICU is taken up by COVID patients. 16%. We got a lot of people in hospital right now. And we got a highly transmissible variant that's concerning. It always has been. It always will be when there's a new variant flying through the air at this rate of speed because it's something that Delta didn't do and the UK variant didn't do and original COVID, if you will, COVID Coke Classic didn't do. Okay, All those things are accurate. But 16% of capacity right now is taken up by COVID in ICU. We've got a hospital problem. We've got a capacity problem. We've got a staffing problem. We're not seeing hospitals. And I'm going to tell you this firsthand from being at one a couple nights ago for something I was concerned with. I'm good. I'm fine. But um, it's not overflowing with COVID and COVID patients. Unless the Ontario Hospital Association has some reason, and I don't think they do, not to be accurate. Do certain doctors have a reason not to be accurate? I'll let you decide that for yourself. In Chicago, I want to point this out, and I want to give some credit here uh, as we pivot um, to John Tory and Eileen Davila. Sometimes I'm critical of their policies and how they've handled COVID. I am. Um, again, none of this is ever personal. This is about doing the right thing, looking at the data, and agreeing or disagreeing with policy and and going through some element of, of a risk-benefit reward. Again, I'm not going to be some puppet with somebody's hand up my back giving you talking points of public health. Um, if somebody else at, at the, on the radio at this time of morning wants to do that, fantastic. Wonderful. Good stuff. But uh, I want to go to John Tory and Eileen Davila and compliment them. Dr. Davila said yesterday, schools should be open. We, we should have our kids in school right now. And I've been concerned at times that her policy has been too alarmist. She's documented two things. One, which I'm glad about, is the utter mental health crisis that we're in right now for parents. And I think parents should get choices and be able to look into what we need to do here. Okay. Like, like be educated, know the numbers and know what's uh, more safe than less safe. There aren't any guarantees uh, with where things are at right now, but I'm pleased that the city's top doctor says schools are safe. And, uh, and that's despite the COVID surge. Now she's going to get some criticism for that. That's okay. I get criticized. That's also okay. If I put my head on the pillow at night and know that I brought you the right data and was pragmatic about it, fantastic. This is happening in Chicago right now, by the way, also. And I'm going to get to that in a second. Derek Thompson does a uh, podcast on The Ringer. Derek Thompson writes in The Atlantic, and he's talked about sort of how media framing has changed and in his interpretation. And this guy has advocated for, um, he's been consistent. When we should close up, when we should open up. Derek Thompson's got a ton of things right. Brilliant guy. 
Uh, you can find him on uh, on on Twitter at DK Tom. He's writer with the Atlantic. He goes on with Bill Simmons and talks about media coverage of Omicron and why why it was a little bit alarmist to begin with, and why we needed a proper pivot, and maybe we didn't get one. To separate themselves, to tease apart exactly what's happening during a variant like Omicron, which is a little bit complicated, because on the one hand, Omicron is really, really transmissible. There are a lot of breakthrough cases, and we are used to reporting on the severity of the pandemic by looking at cases. But the variant really does seem to be milder for the vast majority of people who get it. I don't think it's exactly as mild as the flu. To be honest, I don't know how much worse than the flu it is, but it clearly doesn't seem to be exactly as severe as previous previous strains of, of COVID itself. And I think you're starting to see, you know, different organizations are reacting to this new severity. The NBA changes its rules. The NFL changes its rules. But with the media itself, I think you do see, as as you pointed out, some people are reporting on Omicron like it is exactly as dangerous per person as Delta. And that's clearly not true. They're not reporting everything there is to know about this disease. They're maybe a little bit afraid to give, you know, uh, pieces of news that are, that are too good, that that are, seem too optimistic about this variant. Um, but I, I just think it's a, it's a confusing time for the media because the combination of really high transmissibility and, uh, uh, lack of evidence about about you know it being more severe has just caused a lot of consternation about exactly how to represent this threat. Yeah, long clip. I want to get that all in there. And as, as you hear Derek Thompson say, it's clearly not true that Omicron is as severe as Delta. But I don't know that that's being reflected in all the conversations and all the coverage. And there's two conversations to have. Are our hospitals in trouble and, and going underwater? Are people drowning who work in them? Absolutely, 100%. But that doesn't. But but both things are not self-evident. Combining together, they're not. Um, it's important to note that in Chicago, pretty similar city to uh, Toronto, Dr. Allison Arwadi is the quote-unquote you know top doctor for the city. I suppose I, I hate that term, but that's what she is. Um, she says schools are remaining safe despite a COVID surge, and she documents the fact that. There's no question these are tough decisions to make, but she has to make them, and she says kids should be in school. So we are definitely in a big surge of COVID, no question about it. What we've seen, though, over and over again in data is that where you've got the mitigation measures in place and you're taking COVID seriously, the spread is lower. Uh, and I, you know, I can tell you my team has been working very hard all day to support CPS in terms of trying to build some additional testing capacity, if that will help ease people's concerns. Uh, we've been working on making sure, and there's testing going on even while the schools are not open. Uh, there's vaccination going on, uh, you know, and the work to really get us back is absolutely my top priority yeah and needs to be um and so i think we've made some errors in judgment here um uh, it it is incredibly rare for kids to contract COVID 19 and the hospitalization rate that we see here in chicago is no different i looked it up yesterday it's similar to that of a flu year i'm not going to tell parents that you shouldn't worry but why do we have a lot of hospitalizations quote unquote right now because we got a lot of parents taking their kids with either a positive test which isn't great of course it's not um, or a, uh, but no judgment here, or or we're having a scenario where we're taking uh, kids with a runny nose or a cough right to the emergency room. And we wouldn't have done that in 2019, 2018, or any of those years when, as I showed you and told you, that the hospitals were overflowing. They overflow at this time of year, plain and simple. Okay, January 6th, 2022 is today. January 6th, 2021, uh, a day that lives beyond uh, in infamy. And uh, we remember how it made us feel, uh, the visceral reaction. My biggest reaction was, aren't they just going to come back the next day? Like, I literally thought that. I guess that's the thing. I was worried waking up. We all were probably going to bed January 5th, waking up January 6th, and I'm just like, What's to stop them from being back the next day? But uh, but they didn't. And uh, wow, so much to remember. There will be a lot to reflect on today. I'm so excited our next guest is on. Uh, he's a former U.S. congressman, uh, a, a talk radio host, has this brilliant podcast uh, called White Flag with Joe Walsh. He's also a new grandfather, which is impossible because, Joe, I like talking to smart people that, that like to be uh, accountable and white flags about talking to people with different perspectives. But that's impossible. You're a grandfather. Like you and George Clooney, if you stood next to each other, you're the same age. I, w- I wouldn't know who was who. 
Well, we look like each other as well, <laughs> and I do. Hey, but you forgot one thing, Greg. Joe Walsh is also Greg Brady's biggest fan. Good to be with you. <laughs> it is great to have you on. That Did you have that same sort of reaction going to bed at night? It was just an unshakable. You've worked in that building. Uh, I can only imagine the visceral effect it had on you watching the footage, the sunsets that night. And aren't we thinking what's happening on January 7th? Absolutely. And, and you know, again, I wasn't alone. I knew that stuff was going to go down on January 6th. A lot of people did. I think it's just the beginning. I still worry because I still think we're in that same place. But, Greg, I got to say this. I, and, and to me, this day today is about one person. One person, a guy who lied, began lying about the election months before the election. Uh, a guy who refused to accept the will of the American people. And then somebody who purposely incited a violent attempt to overthrow the election. This day is about Donald Trump, and and I don't want us to ever get away from that. It's worrying, too. Uh, I saw Joe Scarborough on the other day, uh, and he says, I've been wrong before. I've underestimated Donald Trump before. But he doesn't think he's running. I know in our last conversation, you think that he is. What makes sort of what what makes the audience lean your way instead of the other Joe's way, and that Donald Trump's going to be the Republican nominee for president? Well, nobody knows, right? But the only constant about Trump is he only gives a he only gives a damn. I, I almost yep, yep. I caught myself there, Greg. <laughs> he, we know he only cares about Donald Trump. He doesn't give a damn about the country. He doesn't give a damn about the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, you, me, Canada, America, anything. So, so he only cares about advancing Trump. Look, if he runs, the nomination is his. Nobody will challenge him. And right now, Greg, the, the Democrats are fairly weak. I hate to say this. No. If Donald Trump ran in 2024, he's got a damn good shot at being elected again. And he wants that. And this is what I've seen, Joe. Joe Walsh joining us on uh, Toronto Today. This is what I've seen from the Democrats. I've seen Merrick Garland be about as soft as you can be in terms of chasing down the truth and prosecuting these uh, domestic terrorist maniacs. I've seen Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer do the same things, and that concerns me greatly. If the script was flipped, you can bet the Republicans would be, you know, given uh, not just slap on the wrist jail sentences and tisks to Democrats who attack the Capitol House. Uh, Donald Trump is un-American. He's anti-democracy. He's a traitor. But think about this, Greg. He's got a fighter's chance of getting reelected because the Democrats are so weak. Everything you just said is true. And I know there's another issue that you rightly have been going off on for a long time, and that's our reaction to COVID. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't know what it's like up there, but down here, man, the American people, we get vaccinated, you get boosted. I want to move on with our lives, but the Democrats are beholden to, say, the teachers' unions. So now we've got teachers who don't want to go back in the classrooms. All of this stuff is going to help Republicans and hurt Democrats uh, and it's an absolute shame. No, they're walking into the lion's den at midterm elections. And you can lay out for our audience, the midterm election is often uh, a, a slap anyway, isn't it? Not as many yeah. people vote percentage-wise, uh, but Bill Clinton got slapped. That's when Newt Gingrich became Speaker, you'd famously remember, during the midterms in 1994. Um, even Reagan lost some steam in the midterms in 86 uh, as we were starting to, Iran-Contra was starting to circulate. So even for a sitting president that's very popular, even in non-crisis times um there's a bit of a pushback i i worry it's going to be a slaughterhouse in november for the dems look i got elected in 2010 two years after obama right the first midterm after obama and it was an overwhelming republican victory you're right history says the republicans will win in 22 uh uh uh, the, the redistricting says republicans will win in 22 the only thing greg that can change history is trump 81 million people came out last year to vote for Biden, not because we all love Biden, but because we understood the threat Trump was. If Democrats and independents who typically don't come out and vote in the midterm don't get off their ass and feel the same threat that Trump is, 
you're right. Republicans are going to are going to clean house this year. I want to come back to Jan six, but you mentioned uh, absolutely irrespective of you coming on because, yeah, you're you're Illinois based. I played a clip earlier from Dr. Allison Arwadi, who uh, denoted and uh, I don't think she's done everything right. Who has? That's a tough job to be yeah. a city's top doctor, a province's top doctor, state, whatever. But she basically laid it out there and said the safest place for kids to be in schools. Teachers are vaccinated and boosted. And I was saying this all morning. Like, are you saying you don't trust the vaccines? Because that doesn't make any sense. I don't even want you teaching our kids. If you think you're you're three times vaccinated and you're at some kind of risk for severe disease in your 30s or 40s, there's no data that supports that. If if Democrats side as they typically do with the teachers unions and don't demand our kids be back in the classrooms they are going to get whomped in 22, and they will deserve to lose. That was the story, Greg, in the Virginia gubernatorial election a couple months ago. It was education. It was a revolt of parents who wanted their kids in schools. You nailed it. The safest place for them to be is in the schools. I think this is a great opportunity for Biden to stand up for the uh, to stand up for the kids and stand up to the unions. And I think he can do it in a respectful way. Why have there not been more Republicans? Um, and why didn't this turn? This was a perfect opportunity. And I, I feel like a sucker, and I'm sure many like me feel like a sucker, thinking after the Capitol attack, nothing's indefensible. You can't, you, nothing's defensible, I should say. And it's all indefensible. You can't just say, well, I wish he wouldn't be so rude, or I wish he wouldn't tweet that. No, 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 no. Now you've lost that that any sort of moral or ethical or or policy high ground to say, well, I like some of what he's done with taxes and trade. You've lost all of it, and yet people still go to the mat to defend him. People who don't have to. They don't need the money, Joe. They don't need the position. Why do they do it? Uh, absolute political survival. Greg, there was about a four-day window after January 6th where Republicans, McConnell, McCarthy, everybody had an opportunity to say, that's it, I'm done, this guy's gone. Even, I mean, I talked to hardcore Trump supporters, even for the first three to four days after January 6th last year, even hardcore Trump supporters were like, oh my God, what is this? But then reality set in. Trump came out and began doing his crap. Then Hannity and Laura Ingram and all the rest echoed Trump's crap. And after a week or two, McConnell, McCarthy, all the rest, they then went where the base was. And, and now here we are a year later, Greg. And after a year of, oh, January 6th is no big deal. Now most of the Republican Party base actually takes pride in January 6th. So the politicians will echo that. I know we're in a tough COVID era right now uh, with cases. No doubt we are. I, I think a lot of people, I had a couple of uh, really smart doctors on this morning that documented that o o Omicron's the way out is, is going to be a tricky two months. But then I, we think we're set up for a good spring and summer. It's important to amplify messaging. And though I, you're right on the money and you and I could agree on everything that Fox News is right now. I lay, I still lay a lot of this on all the networks. I lay this at, at CNN. You can't show Trump rallies live and Trump news conferences live and then spend all the rest of your programming day talking about how terrible Donald Trump is. Is there responsibility? And, and I don't even know where, uh, where trust is in the media from the average human being, not the people that are on Twitter because 75% yeah. of the population couldn't give a rip about Twitter and they're never on there. You and I should get smart and leave also. But either way, how, the, the average person has, it's at an all-time low to trust what's coming out of my mouth or your mouth, and we're trying to get things right. You know, Greg, it's it's such it's such a missed opportunity. And I, I think of like Biden and the Democrats, they got elected because they weren't Trump. And that's a good thing. And Biden's done some good things, Greg, but he doesn't communicate well and he doesn't manifest strength. I wish he were communicating better with the American people, providing leadership on what the hell we should be doing to get the hell out of this covid thing. Um, and, and you do have, unfortunately, you do have too many voices on CNN and MSNBC that seem obsessed with uh, COVID and keeping it going. And, and, and there's got to, that's not where most of the American people are. Look, 
Fox News lies about it, but we want to move on from it. And I need a voice. We need voices to say that. Preaching to the choir here. Uh, your brilliant podcast, White Flag. You've had uh, ESPN's Kenny Maine on recently. You had uh, the great actress Jane Lynch. Hey, by I- the way, by the way, yeah. by the way, Greg, I know you appreciate him. He was a freaking riot. He's hilarious and very political, Kenny Maine. Oh, I can't wait. To, I haven't heard that. I, I'm, I'm halfway through the Jane Lynch one right now. I love the, uh, um, yeah. oh my goodness, um, blacking out Ducky. John Cryer. You had a great chat with John yeah, Cryer yeah, yeah. from Pretty and Pink and Full House. Uh, it's going great. Eh? This is exactly the kind of journalism and, and radio and deep conversation that I think people are looking for. I want to sit down every week with somebody who doesn't think like me. And I want to have a respectful debate and talk about where we can find common ground. This country, Greg, is on the precipice of never being united again. And, it, and we won't be if we don't get out of our corners and talk to other people who don't think like us. And that's what I'm trying to do with White Flag. Find White Flag with Joe Walsh. Uh, I'm so glad, you know, you chose to spend some of this day. It's an important day. I know you've got other stuff to do, but thank you for making time hey, for me way, and our by audience. Way, by the way, yeah. can I just toot you? Thank you for what you do. And I love following you and I love listening to you. And I love the fact that you very respectfully preach your truth. Keep doing it, brother. Thank you, Joe. Greatly appreciate it. Have a great day. Uh, I want to see you in Chicago really soon. I miss that city. Damn it. Better waterfront than Toronto. But, uh, wow. Joe Walsh uh, joining us. Hopefully I've made our next guest uh, uh, giggle because he remembers his slow dances, but he probably didn't breach ethics uh, like I did. Uh, Dr. Isaac Bogus joins it now. I'm lucky to be here, and I may not be here after telling that story, Dr. Bogus. Yeah, full disclosure, no one asked me to dance. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was what I feared with this girl. She was a nice girl, and I thought, I, I, she feels bad. She, her friends watch her walk up to me, and I'm like, okay, I'm kind of getting paid. Now Now I feel like Tina Turner, private dancer. I'm getting paid to dance with people. This is not a bad gig. What's going on here? Pretty impressive, I guess. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, heavy stuff. Let's let's drop an anvil on the public. We're all uh, feeling rough and burned and fried. I wanted to get your perspective on what seems to be a debate, and I think it's a debate in the medical community, and, and those with, with mature language and nobody yelling at each other are important. This debate about with COVID because of COVID. We're seeing hospitals document that information now. Some people had called for it for a while. I especially think, Dr. Bogosh, in a post-vaccination world, that those numbers have some merit, are important. We can't overreact to any form of data without also understanding, you know, the seriousness of the situation we're in. Where do you stand on it? Yeah, I mean, like anything else, we can have an honest adult conversation and not weaponize terms and not overplay things and not underplay things. This is an important conversation to have. Obviously, when you have so much COVID in the community, some people are going to come to hospital and they're going to have they're going to happen to have COVID totally unrelated Mm -hmm. to whatever they're there for. That's important to know. Someone, you know, breaks their ankle falling off a curb. Oh, they're swabbed. They're COVID positive. Like it's helpful to know that. Similar, you know, some people have other underlying medical conditions that get exacerbated by COVID, you know, uh, an abnormal heart rhythm, some breathing issues, other underlying health conditions. And COVID makes that worse. And that's why they seek hospital. That's also important. And then, of course, some people get rip-roaring COVID. They come in and they can't breathe. That's also important. I mean, I think it's important to document with COVID or because of COVID, just calling it how it is. Listen, I've I got off of a a pretty decent stint in the hospital not too long ago. Sometimes it's not, sometimes it's hard to tell. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish between the two. And it's it's a bit of a judgment call. But nevertheless, imperfect data, it's still important to know. It helps frame the conversation. And it's, it's data. Like, it's not weaponized. It's just data, and it's helpful data. So I, I, I think we need to look at this more closely. I think you put that brilliantly because there's a, there's probably a lot of cases where it's difficult to know what box to check, per se. But but we've had we've had that for years, haven't we, where it's it's tough to know. Is this it, Did you come in with the flu? Did, did something happen if you went out with the flu with symptoms and, and then it got worse? Did you stay at home and isolate? There's, there's, there's so much, how would I put it, gray matter with illness in yeah. general. Yeah, of course. I mean, this is not a perfect, you know, they call it, this is the, art, the arts and the sciences. It's not just a perfect science. But I think the other important point, too, is, you know, why are we talking about this? Some people are saying, well, look, if, if I'm, I'm just making up a number, is it 30% of people or 40% of people admitted to the hospital that have a COVID diagnosis don't actually come in because of COVID. They come in because of something else. 
is COVID really as big a deal as, as, as people are saying it is? The answer to that is it's a lot bigger than COVID. These are capacity issues, right? And these are capacity issues that are driven by COVID as well. And it's not unique to healthcare. It's unique to, it's, it's, it's in every sector of the economy. You're hearing about police having difficulty staffing uh, cars on the street. You're hearing about air, airlines canceling flights. You're hearing about businesses closing because they can't staff themselves because of COVID diagnosis. Healthcare is no different. You've got personnel out either being infected or exposed. Plus, we've been we've dwindled our, our uh, personnel over the last two years. People have left because it's just stunk working in healthcare. So, you know, with COVID, because of COVID, it's important data to have. But there's a much bigger conversation, and that's capacity issues in vital sectors of the economy. Do we have the ability to care for people? I know we're on a tight timeline uh, this morning, but schools, Dr. Davila said uh, yesterday, she thinks kids should be in schools. I see this in Chicago. I worry we're conflating the safety of teaching in schools with the, um, the great desire we all have to do just what you said with staffing shortages, preserve hospital capacity, make sure that, that there isn't a trickle down effect. But I think it's, you know, this, it's a tough sell to tell the parent of a seven and eight-year-old especially, you're staying home because of, of what's going on in our hospitals. They're not going to quite understand that, so they're going to think schools are patently unsafe. It's a big problem. Get them in schools. Get kids back to schools. You've got two. They made the decision to hold off for two weeks. Use those two weeks wisely. Get those masks out to people that need them. Prioritize first and second doses in kids and third doses in educators and administrators under that roof. There, There's no reason why kids should not be back in school on the 17th. That has to happen. 30 seconds. Uh, kids in, in N95s or KN95s, a lot of parents are going to do it. A lot are not. It, it, it's, uh, we don't want any more division than we already have. But um, but what are you hearing with, uh, anecdotally from parents in terms of, I, I suppose, upgrading, quote unquote, their mask game? Two things to think about with masks. It's the two Fs, fit and filtration. N95s aren't magical. I mean, they just have a tighter fit and they're high filtration. You can still do that with uh, other types mm-hmm. of masks that might be deemed more comfortable to wear by some, uh, you know, but, you know, some people are married to this to N95s. Honestly, I, while they're certainly high-quality masks, there's other ways to get high-quality masks. Um, Public Health Agency of Canada's website. Have a peek. They give some excellent examples of masks that are uh, appropriate to wear, and I think that's a very reasonable place to start. There's a lot of mm-hmm. right answers. There's also wrong answers. The wrong answer is, you know, a flimsy, single-layered cloth mask that's hanging off your face. Like, that's just not going to cut it. Even if you've got the perfect mask, even if you've got perfect ventilation, even when people who are eligible for vaccinations are vaccinated, like, let's just be realistic. There's still going to be outbreaks in the school. Like, I I don't think people should demand perfection because we're not going to come anywhere near that. There will be outbreaks in the school, even in a setting of unlimited resources. Hopefully, the resources applied can minimize the frequency of these outbreaks, the size of these outbreaks. But, like, of course, outbreaks are going to happen. We know that. Maybe some people can have the option to learn from home if they're, uh, you know, at risk of having a severe outcome or someone in their family is at risk of having a severe outcome. But I think for the vast majority of people, uh, there's a tremendous want and need to go back to school in person. Thanks for bringing this today, Dr. Bogosh. Really appreciate it, and our listeners do too. Have a great day. Have a great day. Be well. Yesterday, um, you remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, that boulder that's chasing Indiana Jones? Well, that was uh, that was the pause, in essence, for a lot of people waiting for it. Non-urgent. A lot of people don't like the name elective surgeries, and I don't either. When you need a knee done or a hip done or anything uh, that is uh, the helping you live 24-7, that's not elective. Um, but they're described as non-urgent surgeries, and a lot of them have had to have been paused. Uh, I'm pleased to welcome on the Chief of Surgery from Oakville Trafalgar Memorial Hospital. He is Dr. Duncan Rosario. Dr. Rosario, thank you very much for making the time first. It's it's incredible uh, in a terrible way that we're back here. We we worked our way out of this. I know there was a backlog of, of surgeries anecdotally. You probably never, ever thought we'd be here again uh, once we started to move back and catch up with certain surgeries in the spring and summer. You're, you're quite right, uh, Greg. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for the opportunity to chat. Uh, I wanted to thank you and your entire team for the Great work that you do bringing uh, science and facts uh, into the, uh, the healthcare challenges that we're facing. Oh, now. thank you. We're trying to use data and pragmatism and not scare people. That's all we can do. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely.
What what are you? It, it, just the emotional perspective of, of knowing it's it's so triumphant for for surgeons for those who assist in terms of making people's lives better and uh, and people who wait. I know I've had two knee surgeries. I'm I'm a nobody schlub, but my goodness, the the thankfulness I feel when when you start to recover is you can't even put it into words. And we're pausing a lot of these in in such difficult times as well. You're quite right, Greg. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a challenge not only for patients, but for the, the wonderful women and men who work in healthcare. Uh, the reason that draws people into healthcare is the opportunity to uh, improve quality of life and alleviate uh, suffering. And so, the being being denied that, being uh, that process being stopped, is is heart wrenching not only for patients, but for the, the wonderful nursing staff and support staff and the, the physicians who work in healthcare. And uh, it, this is certainly unpredicted and it's unprecedented and uh, it, it's a tremendous challenge and a, a disappointment in many ways as well. Dr. Duncan Rosario, uh, Chief of Surgery, Oakville Trafalgar Memorial Hospital, our guest on Toronto Today. Uh, do you see, some do, some don't, a, uh, a chronological light at the end of the tunnel? Do you look and go with what you know, with where Omicron is, with where our, our perception of it is, do you see this as being a brief, a more brief pause than we had in the winter and spring last year? Are you hoping this is only for a month, for five, six weeks? What do you see? Uh, fortunately, that's exactly uh, what, I, what I would predict, and that's what a lot of the scientists are predicting as well. I, I think what we are experiencing now is the storm before the calm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the experience in South Africa and many other nations, uh, Omicron uh, comes like a wave, uh, causes significant numbers of infections, but much lower numbers of hospitalization and ICU admission, uh, and much lower uh, numbers of deaths, and and then settles within a matter of weeks. And so if I was uh, one to make predictions, which I'm not, uh, I, I would estimate that by uh, the end of January or into early February, we will start to see things wane and we will be able to uh, get back to the provision of uh, surgical care and medical services as uh, as we need to to provide care to the community. Because the challenge now, Greg, is not only an issue of uh, physical resources and beds and operating rooms. The challenge now is as COVID-19 spreads through the community, larger numbers of healthcare providers, nursing staff and physicians and all the wonderful people who work in healthcare are are being infected. And even if one has mild symptoms, there's a requirement to quarantine to prevent spreading the infection to vulnerable patients and other uh, care providers. It's so true. And it's, it's, it's a massive issue that we didn't necessarily deal with in the spring. It was just, to be honest, it was a more, it's now a more easy uh, virus to acquire we got a huge break with the lack of severity. I know some people bristle a language, but you have to call it what it is based on, again, data and science. And uh, and we got a terrible, terrible break with the uh, the massive transmissibility of it. We got a huge uh, uh, bad break with that. Quite true. The, uh, the advantage that we have now is that uh, Canadians have done what they need to do. We have large numbers of vaccinated uh, uh, patients, uh, and we know that from uh, the, the European, uh, African, and from the American data, we know that if one is completely vaccinated, the likelihood of serious illness or hospitalization is a fraction of the risk to those who are not fully vaccinated. So we have a, va- a predominantly vaccinated population. We have uh, uh, large amounts of personal protective equipment. We have uh, uh, staff who are trained and comfortable in dealing with uh, uh, patients with the active COVID infection. So we are in a much better position uh, this year than we were one year ago. And I have no doubt that we will uh, get through this. We will uh, get back to where we need to be, which is providing high quality, timely care uh, to all of our patients. The uh, I have a friend who works at Sunnybrook Hospital, and he probably wouldn't want me to mention who he is, but he says they have 99 patients at Sunnybrook with COVID. They've classed 11 of those 99 as being there because of COVID. I know it's a it's a little bit of a uh, social um, sociopolitical hand grenade right now, but I do think it matters. We just had Dr. Bogosh on noting that it matters. Are you seeing something similar where you are? Uh, well, so uh, we publicly report our COVID positivity at uh, Halton Healthcare, and uh, on the website, it, it's clearly reported that as of yesterday, we had 32 patients in hospital with uh, COVID-19-related symptoms. 
But one needs to understand, you know, our hospital, our Oakville site alone has 500 beds. So 32 patients doesn't represent a huge uh, number of our available beds. But the the key constraint, uh, as Dr. Bogach will also say, is not only bed capacity, but the human resource challenges that when you have nursing staff and physicians off, uh, with enough care providers off, that has a tremendous impact on our ability to provide emergency and urgent care. And as much as possible, we need to protect our uh, human resources to ensure that we can at all times provide that emergency and urgent care to our, uh, our patients. That's so critical and, and such an amazing service. One more for you. I'm curious to know if now we're counting hospitalizations as I, I'm sure we all know tons of people uh, with COVID. I haven't known anybody that have, you know, stayed overnight. I haven't known anybody that stayed in ICU. Now, now remit, admittedly, this is almost everybody I talk to is under 45, let's say, and we're all trying to, you know, keep away from our parents, keep away from our grandparents, keep away from vulnerable people. All that's true. Um, if if a parent is bringing a child in to emergency with a positive te- or to an ER and and they get looked at for four or five hours, we're counting that as hospitalizations, right? Um, well, the hospital uh, reports hospitalizations related to COVID-19 as uh, individuals who are actually admitted to hospital. Uh, we typically do not count patients who are simply seen and assessed in the emergency department who may have been swabbed and may be uh, identified as COVID positive, but are discharged home for outpatient care. So that does not refer to uh, hospitalization. Uh, That data is certainly publicly reported to the Ministry of Health, but uh, that number of 32 refers to inpatients, refers to individuals who are actually resident in the hospital, typically related to severe symptoms requiring supportive care, such as intravenous fluid oxygen or in severe cases, uh, ventilation in the case of uh, ICU patients. ICU patients. It's such an important distinction to make because I know ERs are getting flooded right now. Yeah, mostly with with concerned parents or kids. Some of those kids, most of those kids go right home after being assessed, but some are staying. Um, We know that's true. I got to move along, but I loved having you on and thank you for the clarification, the kind words on the the show as well. And uh, and please thank everybody you come into contact with today at your hospital. Um, we, We owe all these people, all these men and women, such a great debt and we will for decades and we got to fix this we got to fix our system i uh, thank you so much and uh, we wish you and your team all the best and continue to provide that uh, great information uh, to the to the wonderful people of the gta thank you sir uh dr duncan rosario chief of surgery oakville trafalgar memorial hospital i'm just seeing this uh across my timeline university of michigan right ann arbor michigan hail to the victors let's not talk about that new year's eve game i couldn't even watch the second half i wanted to i wanted to throw up and it wasn't the indian food that was fantastic uh but more than 1,000 faculty members at university of michigan have vowed to teach online today or help those who do and that defies an order from their university president mark schlissel He's probably one of the better University of Michigan presidents. We're going to rank them later in the show. Faculty members say they don't want to teach in person because of risks of getting COVID-19. Okay, um, but it's one of the best schools in the country. you got to be pretty smart to go there. And that tells me the faculty is deeply skeptical of the vaccine's ability to protect you from severe illness. Like, that's, that's my takeaway. And I'm sorry if you have another takeaway, but that's my takeaway, that the faculty is skeptical of the or, of the vaccine's ability, or they're scared. And we have to provide resources for people that are scared, or they're skeptical about the vaccine. But I don't have a third option here. Uh, Dr. Eric Cam joins us now, uh, economics professor from X University. When I give you that story, you know, you want I know you want to step in front of uh, lecture halls again and and get right in front of students. And you can't wait for that day. You, you've been adamant about that and, and consistent with that. When I tell you that story, what do you think? Well, it's hard to believe for me that these overwhelming numbers of people who want to stay home and lecture are actually true. I think there's a lot of um, a, a lot of hyperbole and a lot of number inflation to many of these stories because I can only give you my experience and the experience of the colleagues that I speak to. And after a long time, and for me, it's more than two years now, most of us want to get back into a lecture hall. I personally, I practice something called edutainment. I teach classes of at least a thousand people at once. And it's hard to do what I do behind a microphone. I'm not as gifted as you. So I think a lot of times we've got to get, uh, we've got to get this, this inflation of numbers 
and storytelling down and, and get back to reality. And I'm, I'm not a thousand percent sure we're living there right now. You've had a personal hit with COVID um, and your family has not going to get there in a sec. I wrote this yesterday. I stand by these numbers. I don't think I'm uh, suffering some kind of you know psychosis or inflation, but I do think uh, that I wrote teachers would vote to be in schools right now in in the TDSB or any other board at 70% or more. Parents would vote for their kids in school 80% or more, and kids would want to be in school easily 90% or more. Uh, you can take issue. I, I don't mind you coming at me. You can take issue with any of those numbers. The only, the only issue that I would take on any of those numbers that you just gave is I think those are understated. Um, everybody that listens knows that I live with, uh, my wife is a grade five, six teacher in the TDSB. And I know not just my wife, but uh, I would say about 90%, and that's the low, the low bar, 90% of her friends, they want to go back. And they want to go back for themselves because they know that they're more effective educators in the front of a room. But they talk a lot now, more than I've ever heard about children's mental health being compromised, socialization being compromised. I don't think people understand yet, because we're not there yet, that this is going to have, by taking away their friends and their activities and their hobbies, I don't think we've ever had a real life study of social isolation on children. Oh God, and I think no. we, are, we are only going to find this out 5, 10, 15 years from now, what we are doing to our children. So while I would, again, I don't want to cause a fight with anybody, but you may hear some teachers on the radio or television say they want to be back, but that is not the overwhelming feeling that I get from my wife and her hordes of friends who say it's enough, put on masks, give me a HEPA filter, but let me go back to doing what I do, which is giving children the best experience that they can have. So is, uh, I don't want to speak uh, for your wife, um, I sometimes do for mine and I get in huge trouble, um, especially ordering in restaurants. But I, I would ask you this, is, would she go back, is she skeptical that enough's going to be done, that they're back in two weeks? And this two weeks of time, to me, Dr. Kim, that it, it doesn't buy anything. This is this is a standoff right now. I don't think anything uh, is going to be done by Monday the 17th that couldn't have been done yesterday. Uh, no, nothing is going to be done. Uh, my wife is incredibly skeptical. When, when the word came down, the official word, and they said that the schools are going to be closed for two weeks. I mean, she, she just about slammed her head on the table and said, here we go again, welcome to 2019. And that's the problem. And you know, you mentioned my family, and I think that every family is different. And uh, so if the listeners care, um, just before Christmas break, we, we had a real medical uh, double whammy. Everybody in my house was COVID positive from me at 54 years old to my son, at almost eight years old. And then on Christmas Eve, if that wasn't fun enough, my mother suffered a stroke. And now yeah. thanks to the brilliant people at Sunnybrook Hospital, she is fine and recovering and we are fine and recovering. But for me, it doesn't reinforce this, we are all in this together homogeneity theory. For me, all of this reinforces that we are not in this together. We are not, everybody is different. I don't mind for two weeks staying home with my children and helping them with school because I go back on the 17th, but I know I'm in an incredibly privileged position and most parents don't have that. We are taking away choice. We are taking away mental health and we're doing it almost deceptively. And I think that that's the tragedy here is I think that, that what's going on and, and I could go on forever about what closing business and closing schools mean to me. And I know I'm on the right side of the curve, but I think we're going to be years, Greg, seeing the disastrous, disastrous economic and mental health results of these decisions today. And I, 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 I'm just going to go there again. I think confident parents create a confident household and that creates confident kids. Now, what I don't like doing to kids that I consider confident, my God, they're pains in the asses sometimes, but they're confident kids. And, uh, and, and but, but they're not insensitive kids. They're not oblivious to everything that goes on around them. And that's the house I was raised in. And that's the house, no matter what I do differently than my parents, there's not nine, I can go for nine minutes about things I don't want to do like my parents did. And they'd say the same 
same about theirs. We all try and evolve. That said, um, the, that's all what I hate doing, and you're probably the same, is telling is telling kids, well, you know, th- this is going to happen and then you get this back and this is going to happen. Like we are constantly offering them chocolate chip cookies and then smashing them up and breaking them on the ground. We are. The, the problem that I've had with children so far, and I don't just mean mine, I mean in speaking to so many, is that they are not as dumb, unfortunately, as some people would like to believe, meaning that they don't know the sort of micro details of variants and Omicron and Delta, but they're scared because they know that, again, I have a seven and a half year old. He knows that at one point his art classes started again his hockey started again, his tap dancing classes started again, and now they're gone. And so he comes to me and he's not in a, in a, in a sheet of panic, but he wants to know what's going on. These kids are smart enough to know that life looked like this and now it is, is, is turned upside down. And I don't know if they're scared, but they're curious and they deserve answers just like adults do. And they wanna know how long is this gonna last? What's going on and are we gonna be okay? And I think as parents, we've got to do some pretty impressive stick handling right now to answer their questions, not to terrify them, but not to dismiss them either and say, don't worry, it's going to be fine, go upstairs, because in a lot of cases, it just may not. I'd hate to put my hands on somebody else, uh, another adult. I I won't do that. So I'll have to put them on myself. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want the audience to go in a certain direction with that. But I'm going to choke myself out if, uh, if I hear the phrase, kids are resilient one more time. It's an idiotic statement. It's it's the irony is it's often uttered by adults who have who are are the least resilient people I've ever met. And it's a finite time you get to be. Oh, that's great. Kids are resilient. Awesome. Can can my kid do grade nine and ten over again when he's seventeen and eight? Oh no, he can't. So there's finite principles of time. That's great that you think they're all resilient. Here's what they're resilient against: COVID. <laughs> they're resilient against COVID more than a seventy year old person is. What more do you need to know? Well, they actually, and and that's true. And again, I don't want to take a small sample and blow it up, but my son and his friends, many of them have had COVID and they had a grand total of one day of symptoms. Yeah. One day of symptoms. When you measure that to the effect of taking away their friends and their activities and their hobbies, it really is enough to make you cry. And by the way, this kids are resilient is the most asinine thing I have ever heard because as you said about your teenage boys and I say it uh, about my teenage daughter who gets to give them back their youth who gets to give them back their youth my daughter and I we go to the same high school or I did I actually passed and graduated a few years ago but that's we not, go to that's the not same what I've heard yeah well you know what grade 10 was 11 <laughs> good years but but my high school experience I would cry Greg if you bring me on one day and say let's do Eric Cam, this is your yeah. life I will cry about my four years at AY Jackson. My daughter has zero emotional attachment to that building because it's been taken from her. She wasn't allowed to develop that attachment. She wasn't allowed to develop those friendships. Is that resilience? That's that is garbage. It's awful, man. I'm glad you're healthy. By the way, we'll do Eric Cam. This is your life like June of 2020. Roy Roy Green may want that instead. He may do an entire weekend on that. So you just, you know, wait for that call. I'm sure it's coming. You know, if you want to put your name on the list, Roy Green has right. many of us lunch, so you might want to sign up for that early. Oh well, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I'm not. I'm not in the club. I'd love to be in the club, but uh, you know, I, I don't know what the secret handshake is with you, you people, you people out there. I got to be careful with the you people stuff. Uh, loved having you on. Stay healthy, get healthy, and we'll talk next week. Happy Insurrection Day. Stay healthy, Greg. It is that, Doctor Eric Cam. I'm in a really good mood today. I don't know what it is. I don't know. I Heck, I can't even guess at it. I know what it is. I know what it is. Uh, I got to pick my marital partner. I got to pick <laughs> my spouse. I don't know if she did. I can't tell for sure uh, what she was thinking. By the way, Sheba Siddiqui uh, joins us now, uh, Dave Bradley and Gord Rennie alongside. You saw a photo of uh, my wife um, the other day. And did. Uh, and what did you what did you say to me? Because oh, well, I relayed the message. To I her. said she's beautiful. Thanks. She's she is really. It was a beautiful picture of you guys together over the holidays. I thought she was beautiful. And then my next question was, how do you land that? Okay, Brady, how'd you land that? Did you have a different personality back then? Well, I'm or? glad it's not about looks and the fact that I I look 38. Um, but uh, <laughs> and and I when I was 38, I looked 29. But but that said, don't do the math there. But um, yeah, you you mentioned more the personality, and I said that to uh, to Rachel, and I'm like, 
I was certainly lighter then. I, I, I did a little, little lighter around 2000, 2001. <laughs> a, little, a little less on my plate, I felt like. A little less stress uh, doing, you know, just talking about whether the Red Wings won a game or not. Felt a little, uh, little easier on the, on the old ticker there. Yeah. Well, you scored. Well, thank you very much. I don't think I... But why don't we ever say that about um, women? Her. Well, I'm trying to figure out what's in it for her. I'm, tr- I'm trying to figure this out here. Dave Gord uh, and I'll, and and me, Greg. We never like do we? Can we even say that out loud? We, the, like, do we ever look at a woman and go, "Wow, how'd you land that, dude?" <laughs> you, mu- you must be really funny and tell some great jokes or something. <laughs> how'd you how'd you land that? How'd you land George Clooney or Brad Pitt? How'd you do that? George Clooney's has- wife is, by the way, out kicking her coverage. I think I don't she think she has a that. great personality. Apparently that's how, so. That's- she that's loves, what people say. She'll watch ER reruns until. Oh, George Clooney's <laughs> wife is a superstar, though. No, that's like no. We're, yes. we aren't calling her. Uh, Amal is he's he's Amal's husband. That's how we're gonna refer. She's to him. not that good looking. I'm sorry. She's she's not. What? <laughs> Sometimes I say things just for effect. The audience has figured that out. <laughs> uh, she's all right. She's just average. Oh my goodness! I okay. uh, uh, we talked. About, were we talking about Leonardo DiCaprio yesterday? And we said should uh, should um, Giselle have stayed with him or ended up with Tom Brady? Dave, you missed that. Uh, we led with that at every hour. Uh, whether yeah. whether Giselle's making the <laughs> best. That's a worthwhile topic. Right I there. think so. Yeah, I think so. So um, we saw this. Um, Sheba, what did you think when you saw this story? There's a guy in the UK, and he's he's a bachelor, and he's 29, um, and he's using a billboard. The 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 honestly the. The actual billboard's amazing. It's got a purple background, and it's him, like, doing some weird George Costanza pose where he's kind of lying sideways. Save me from an arranged marriage. And you can go to this website. Our listeners could even do this. Maybe there's one in Toronto that's the perfect candidate. Find uh, Malik, M-A-L-I-K, awife.com. Malik? Yeah. Well, yep. How do you Fine. know what, how it's pronounced? Fine, Malik. I know how it's pronounced. This is 29 <laughs> years old. His name is Muhammad Malik. He's from England, and he was on Good Morning Britain. And here's what he had to say when he was asked about what he's doing. Let me just, yeah, just for, just for clarification's sake, I think I'm definitely not against uh, arranged marriage. It's quite mm-hmm. a tongue-in-cheek thing to say, just just something a bit ban- banteress. Uh, I think it's a 100% legit way to find somebody, but I thought, you know what, let me let me have a crack at it myself before going down that route. First of all, he sounds hot. I like accents, um, so I, I'm intrigued already to spend some time with him. And I'm, I'm, you know, straight as an arrow. But uh, what do you make of this, like Sheba? Like this is very he's unusual had, well, tactic here. He's got some, some, uh, some gravitas, and everybody's noticing. I love this. it. I love it. Look at the confidence to put a billboard of yourself up to skip over the whole. He tried the online dating. He doesn't, you know, he didn't really find anything. And I, I've seen horror stories right now of what's happening in online dating. But he's had <laughs> over a thousand applications. A thousand people. Dave Gord, can you imagine a thousand women lined up <laughs> for our um, quote unquote services for the rest of I've, our life? I've been on this earth for 48 and a half years, and I only think I've encountered a thousand women. <laughs> you haven't met that many? <laughs> Well, you work in radio, so Dave, yeah. you know, honestly, like we're, we're available for lunches. We work early mornings. We uh, can, you know, we're great in the afternoon. We're not nine to fivers. I, I would only say if if somebody put up a billboard, if I put up a billboard of myself, then it would be defaced within like three hours. Somebody's going <laughs> to spray paint on it or something. Think of the women that met that. But th- uh, now we talk about feelings and we're all, we all get into each other's feelings sometimes. Think about the women that um, were, were pushed forward as a potential partner form. And this guy... This guy was so um, horrified at the idea of spending his life with him that he bought a billboard. Imagine the last woman that was sort of out on a date with him, and then he goes, boy, that turned me in a completely different direction here. Now I'm here. That's a really good point. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, ouch. I think what your parents would want for you is very different than what you would want for yourself. Wouldn't you guys say if your parents had, I mean, I don't know. No, anybody? Well, we, uh, here's what I'd say. I lived I lived with a girl when I was 20, uh, 22 till I was 24, and we broke up. I, that's how I, I ended up with the cat and most of the harder rock <laughs> CDs in, in the separation. But we lived together for two years, and I'm glad I did that because you have to realize I never thought I'd marry her, but I'm like my parents, <laughs> oh my but, but I think her mom thought that we would. And so when we broke up, my parents are like, yeah, we wondered like when you'd sort of come to your senses. And I'm like, well, when were you going to tell me? <laughs> <laughs> they can't tell you because then you would have been with her for longer. Oh, you, you think I would have rebelled oh, yeah, yeah. and gone yes. against her? Yeah. So here's this quote, Sheba, um, in the story. This is on the BBC story, so you may not see the same quote. Um, he uh, he is aware. Oh, it's about the. Yeah. I'm Pakistani Desi. Do I have that pronunciation right? Desi. 
desi. That's what I said. That's South Asian. No, yeah, that's what I said. That's what you said? Oh, okay. A Pakistani desi. Okay. So, and here's the quote. So the first thing we're told about is the power of the antis. But he said that method didn't work out. What's the power? There's no oh, way the- you should let an ant. It's one thing if it's your mom. Ants should have no say in who a man marries. That's outrageous. Okay, look. In South Asian culture, your auntie is not necessarily a relative. It's any woman in your parents' circle of friends or in your community. That's right? even and worse. Well, there are so many that are matchmakers, and they do this. They do this what? all the time. They will go to the weddings. They will find the single girls and say, you know, how come you're not married yet? And what? And they want to know everything about them, their, you know, their education, their goals in life, their, their how great, they, what, what they know how to cook, right? They oh, go my through, gosh. All, I'm telling you, this is what they do. This is their hobby, and they try to set people up. And it's uh, I've seen some horror stories, but I've also seen some very successful marriages come about this way so these aren't even guys these aren't even relatives we got it we need a uh 2020 nightline we need um <laughs> we need keith morrison to investigate this and shut it all down the, the, nobody should be that nosy all i know is if i was there i'd be telling him well good luck <laughs> <laughs> i can't my good ammo. luck well, when it comes to you yeah is that what you're yeah. oh when you're, no come on the- no I disagree with that. I, I want to watch a documentary called The Power of the Antis because this is yeah. not... Oh, and by they the way, are very who, influential. Guys, who are these women that are objectifying other women? We men would never, ever do such a thing and just look at somebody based on their potential value in, in any context, physical or otherwise. We're, we were not like right. that as, as the male species. When no. you walk into a bar, that's yeah. not what so you do. wrong. No. So right. Wrong. Like I just let's make it all about everybody's personality and sense of humor and <laughs> stop this material and, and let's not care what they make money wise. Again, we all work in radio. Let's give us a break here. Thanks so much for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. Really appreciate you checking in with us live show tomorrow to wrap the week between 5.30 a.m. and 9 a.m. on Global News Radio 640 Toronto and continue to find us here where you get your podcasts.